Hello, welcome to Caregiver's Haven, a podcast helping families who are caregivers of a loved one with a mental illness gain peace of mind. Even though this is a podcast focused on family caregivers of the mentally ill, much of the discussion can be helpful to any caregiver. Your host is Sandra. She is a family caregiver sharing her lived experiences and hopes to provide education, support, and resources to other families. Hey, caregivers, it's Sandra from Caregivers Haven. I hope you're all doing well out there, and I hope that you're all remembering to relax. I'm really excited about today's episode discussing bipolar disorder, and I have two guests here with me. And I wanted to discuss bipolar disorder because a lot of you may have heard um, the celebrity Kanye West. There's been a lot of talk in the media with him in the last few weeks. He allegedly has had a couple of bipolar episodes. And, you know, a lot of people, their comments, I can tell that they have misconceptions about the disorder. And so I just wanted to talk about it to everyone out there about the disorder. And so I have Jackie, who is a family caregiver, and I have Jeff, who is a marriage and family therapist here to help with our discussion today. So Jackie, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for inviting me, Sandra. Okay. Thank you for being here. And can you introduce yourself? Yes. Um, As Sandra said, my name is Jackie, and I am a caregiver of a family member. I prefer loved one. I have a loved one who has bipolar disorder. And um, I, ha- I am a volunteer with NAMI, and I have taught family to family. All right, Jeff, can you um, introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jeff, and I'm a, a licensed uh, clinical therapist. And um, I treat a lot of patients or clients uh, that have been diagnosed with bipolar. So I have um, quite a bit of experience dealing with different types of cases with different types of symptoms. I'm glad to be here also. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Jackie mentioned that she teaches at NAMI. And for those of you who don't know, NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Uh, They have a lot of support for for family caregivers, for those of you who don't know about it, for, for for your loved ones and also for the families. So to get started, I just thought we can um, have Jeff go ahead and um, discuss with us what bipolar disorder is um, to maybe get rid of some of those misconceptions out there. Well, in discussing uh, bipolar, um, it's really a severe fluctuation uh, of moods that someone might experience. Uh, There are several types of of bipolar. Probably the, the least severe type would be cyclothymic, which is someone who experiences uh, sometimes of uh, elevated mood and then it fluctuates and goes down into a depressive mood. And it usually lasts for long periods of time, um, but it isn't uh, very significant. You'll just see at, at some point uh, they seem you know, pretty jovial and maybe a little bit out of what would be a comfort zone, but then they can go from that to uh, feeling uh, pretty depressed. Uh, the, the overall idea of bipolar means you're going from the North Pole to the South Pole. So it means you're extremely 
a static uh, one minute, and then that can change and you go all the way down into severe depression. Um, and that doesn't necessarily happen um, overnight or in a day or in a week. Um, but it's an extended period of time where, where you stay at one end or the other. Um, bipolar 2, uh, which people will often see, uh, is someone who will have uh, some type of uh, manic behavior where uh, they're really uh, overly excited or overly joyed or think more of themselves uh, than they should be, uh, some sense of grandiosity. Uh, and then they'll go from that to being depressed and being down low and feeling like uh, they're a failure uh, to other people. So they really struggle with uh, getting out of the depressive part of it. And then the most severe uh, that most people usually react to uh, is bipolar one. And that's where uh, typically you'll have some type of what they call a manic episode. And that means where um, you're excited to the point where uh, you're engaging in risky behavior. Uh, you're doing things <clears throat> without um, any insight. Um, and, and so your behavior can oftentimes get you in trouble. And then usually when you come out of that, um, something negative has happened. So you've either been hospitalized or uh, you've, you've committed some behavior that uh, you weren't too uh, happy about or you don't feel too good about. Uh, and to, so you fall into a deep depression and think, you know, everybody's looking down on you. Uh, that's usually treated by some type of medication along with some type of therapy to kind of regulate your symptoms. But in general, those are uh, the three main areas of, of bipolar that we usually see. Thank you for that. Um, I was going to ask you a question a little bit later, but I, I think I'll go ahead and ask you now because it probably goes along with the definition of bipolar. Um, one question that someone asked is, where does where does the bipolar illness begin and the person begin or vice versa? Like, like, and I, there is not like a split personality, but someone asked that question, like, where does one end and where does one begin? Does it work like that? Or is there a better explanation? And I don't think it necessarily works like that. I think um, <clears throat> what you're dealing with, keep in mind, um, all these uh, diagnoses are nothing but a label that's based on um, a group of symptoms. And so you're looking at so many symptoms will make up one particular diagnosis. If you don't have all the symptoms to qualify, you don't have that diagnosis. So bipolar itself uh, will be mixed up with a bunch of symptoms that you have and all those together qualify um, for that diagnosis. That being said, um, if you're able to, to mitigate symptoms, then in most times you don't get the full mood swing. So it's hard to really say or separate the person uh, from the mood or the person from the experience um, or tell when one moves to the other. What will generally happen is you'll begin to see symptoms elevate. And as you begin to see symptoms elevate, if they're allowed to all elevate at the same time, you kind of get the perfect storm, which leads to bipolar. Mm -hmm. So you keep, can I? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jackie. I was going to ask if I could add something. What, what I like to um, tell families and from what I understand, you know, we, our loved one is still there. We don't want the, this disorder to define them. And they're basically still the same person they were before they had this diagnosis. If they were a quiet, shy person, 
it's likely there's still going to be a quiet, shy person, except perhaps when they're in the midst of a, uh, of a manic episode. Okay. So um, what I forgot to say earlier, as I mentioned that we were talking about Kanye West, um, a lot of this came up because my mentor sent me an article that um, his wife, Kim Kardashian, um, wrote on her Instagram. And it was it was actually a letter that I felt like anyone with a loved one with bipolar disorder could relate to. And she meant and that's why I wanted to do this podcast just to um, to let people know that, you know, these things are really happening. And so one of the things she said in that article was um, that we need to give grace to the mental health issue as a whole, as well as giving grace to the person. And I think that kind of goes along with what you just said um, and what Jeff just said. It's, it's, a, it's a mood disorder with symptoms. It's not the person. You know, the person has an illness. It's not um, a change in a person. The person is still the same. So I like that. Yeah. So it's kind of like what she talked about. So <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about um, going along with all of that is, so we have, we have the um, definition of bipolar disorder. And as Jeff said, it, you can swing from a manic episode to a depressed episode. And so I don't know if people out there are wondering, I would wonder if I didn't already know, why is it hard to get someone experiencing that to the hospital? Um, and there, there are a couple of reasons for that. And I just wanted to quickly talk about the history of getting someone committed. There's a great article, um, if anyone wants to, I won't go into in-depth, but if anyone wants to look it up, and the National Institutes of Health is, um, the, is titled Civil Commitment in the U.S. And it just talks about the history. Um, I remember learning about this in nursing school many years ago. It just talks about the history of asylums and um, institutionalization, involuntary hospitalization, um, that's how it used to be. And this is as recent as the 1960s. And so a lot of people don't, don't know about that. And so back then, anyone could be placed in an asylum. And they were putting a lot of different people in asylums, not just people with a mental illness. They were putting poor people in there. They were putting people who may have just had a seizure disorder. And they were just putting them into these hospitals or asylums, not even giving them meds. Like they just went there and had to live the rest of their life like that. And um, things start to change a little bit. I think it was like the late 1800s. There was a preacher who um, committed his wife because he felt like she um, had committed moral insanity, I think is what they said, <laughs> because they were Presbyterian and he felt like she wasn't following some of the traditional Presbyterian laws. So he had her committed and she fought to get out. And when she got out, she lost custody of her children. She lost her property. And so she began the fate, fight like in 1860 of trying to change the laws of institutionalizing people. And um, she started back then, but it went on for a while. And I mean, like it was all the way to the 1960s, but before anything got changed and a lot of things happened, a lot of factors happened. But prior to that, in 1950, there were like a half a million people committed in, in these institutions who were involuntarily hospitalized, most of them. <clears throat> and it, it was really terrible, but in um, 1963, JFK signed the Community Mental Health Centers Act, and that began deinstitutionalization. And so from 1950 to the 1990s, 
the um, number of people went from 550,000 to 30,000. But, you know, I mean, I know for a lot of people who are young, 1960 may seem like a long time ago, but that's really very recent for us to still have that type of law where people didn't have any rights. And so um, the problem is that we went from one extreme to the other. We went from the extreme of having asylums and involuntary hospitalizations to now, the, you know, the other extreme of sometimes we can't get help for someone who truly needs to be hospitalized. And, you know, we need to fix that. I, I don't know what the answer is because a lot of times in order to find balance, you get into that gray area. And a lot of times it's, it's hard to define the gray area and define, you know, that middle ground, but we do still need to work on that. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why it's hard to get someone committed. And then Jackie, can you go a little bit deeper as far as the patient rights, why it's hard to get someone committed, um, someone? Uh, yes. And, and also uh, we have to remember that when the laws were changed, they were primarily civil rights laws. They're not mental health laws. And in California, that's true. In 1969, the uh, Latterman Petrus Short Act came into effect and it, it essentially closed institutions, which were like cities. They took care of um, physical health and mental health in one place. Mm -hmm. And our uh, psychiatric facilities are not equipped to handle uh, medical and psychiatric conditions in the same building now. Um, and patients' rights, the, that law has a lot of patients' rights uh, language in that law. Um, people have the right to refuse medication. Uh, we cannot force them except with uh, a special hearing in front of a judge. And this judge is not a mental health judge. It's a regular judge that just uh, has to listen to what the doctors have to say. And the, the patient or client has the right to speak on their own behalf and say and refuse medication. Um, and then the court can decide. In and these are the extreme cases um, that a judge will go ahead and order um, medication involuntarily. Mm -hmm. And then um, if, 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 you're, if you're having trouble, like so with Kanye, um, you know, people felt like he was having a manic episode. But if you were to call someone to comfort help, um, unless he was hurting himself or hurting others, then there's really nothing that they could do unless he went voluntarily, correct? That's right. And uh, there's also grave disability when somebody can't, can't 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 provide their food, clothing, and shelter. And, you know, everybody, many people have challenges with people being homeless and not getting the help they need. But again, if they're able to manage, they know where a safe place is to sleep, they still have that right. They're not hurting anybody and they know where to go to stay safe. Right. Um. And then an another reason um, it's hard to get help for them is the word that I can never say. <laughs> Anastagnosia. Yeah. That, is, that is a hard one. The, the first time I heard that word, I think I was reading a book by uh, Dr. Javier Amador called I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help. <laughs> and the book is about his relationship with his brother who had schizophrenia. And Anastagnosia 
essentially breaks is just a word that means lack of insight or they they don't have any understanding that they're sick. So why would you take this medication that your mom, your doctor, your therapist is suggesting that you take if you don't believe or understand or know that you have a disorder or a brain disease that needs this medication. Um, it, it is now in, our, in the book that psychiatrists and therapists use as a symptom of these disorders now. Mm-hmm. That's how ad- advanced we are with being able to diagnose people. We can, we can use that as a symptom. One of the symptoms is they have no insight. They have lack of insight. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. For those of you listening, just imagine you have someone, maybe like Kanye or someone that you see out in the street dancing, you know, in the middle of the road, but they have no idea that they're sick. They have no idea that they need medication. They have no idea that they need to go to the hospital. You know, they're going to fight it. Um, uh, someone dancing this in the street in the middle of the road probably could get some help because they're causing danger to others. But just, I'm just trying to give an example that it's not as easy as it seems to get help for someone. And then on, t- on top of it all, the behavior can be so bizarre um, and unpredictable. And I know that you and Jeff are both talking about compulsive behavior, impulsive behavior. Do you want to talk about the behavior a little bit, Jeff? <clears throat> well, I, there can be impulsive behavior or compulsive behavior. Um, just keep in mind that all these diagnoses, they, they all deal with communication. And I, I think we're used to seeing communication as verbally communicating with someone, but communication comes from the mind. And so when the mind um, um, is, is, is ill is, or sick or it's distorted, then you get different types of, of communication. Um, as, as far as the anosognosia, um, I think it's important, especially in the treatment, to really identify like what's going on with the person uh, when they aren't at that stage. You know, find out things that they enjoy doing, things that you could celebrate. Uh, even talk about like what's going on with them in their normal behavior. Talk about good days that they have and things that they like when they're having good days, because the more you can add uh, to their cognitive or, or mental communication, the more things that they can draw on when they don't have insight. You know, I, I think a lot of times we, we expect people to reason um, when they're going through a crisis and they just, they're not able to reason when they're in a crisis, but the more you can get them to understand and even write down, um, a lot of times uh, they become visual people uh, and so they, they don't have insight to be able to process and think things out. But a lot of times you can show them, hey, you made this contract where if you're going to act like this, then you're saying it's OK for us to hospitalize you. And they don't have to be rational in that moment. Um, visually, it takes them to a different place. And a lot of times you could use that distraction to get them to agree with uh, being hospitalized or at least being assessed. Um, did that answer the question? I know. Yeah, yeah, it did. And um, it's just, you know, mainly I just want people to understand what's going on and how to get help. And yes, that was helpful. I just feel like um, I just want to talk about behavior a little bit because, you know, Caregiver's Haven is um, 
I really want to help family caregivers. And so I want people to understand that the behavior, you know, by it being unpredictable, bizarre, compulsive, impulsive, it totally affects families. It can be very, it makes everything just very complicated. It can be very painful. Um, it can be hard to get help. I, I had a situation where I had a family member. This was probably like 15 or 20 years ago because all of my children were still in school, but I got a phone call from the doctor. A family member had been 5150. They were in the hospital and the doctor called and said, I started a new medication, but your family member needs to be living with someone for two weeks until the medication kicked in because this person lived alone. And so my husband and I drove an hour and a half to the hospital to pick them up. And they, they got in the car and they said, if I'm going to be at your house for two weeks, I need to go get clothes. So we took them to their house to get clothes. We pulled in the driveway and they were like, just wait right here. I'll be right out. Well, they never came back out. So I went and knocked on the door and they were like, we're not coming. And so I went to a panic because the way that this doctor explained it was they have come home with someone to be safe. And now they were telling me that they weren't going to come with me. So I go back to the car and I get my cell phone and I call the doctor. And then the doctor tells me, well, there's nothing you can do. Are they harming themselves? And I'm like, well, no, but you just told me how important it was for them to come home. And he said, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do. They have to voluntarily go to your house with you. And I was terrified because I had no idea what they were going to do. They were standing in the window, so I knew they weren't harming themselves. But, you know, after the doctor telling me that, I was really worried about leaving them there. And I mean, we sat away for like an hour and a half till 1030 at night. And I, we had four kids at home alone with a babysitter. So, you know, I'm like, do I stay or do I go to my kids? So we finally went to my kids after I called the doctor back again. Um, and it turned out that a few days later, they decided to come home with us. But in that moment, you know, I was in a very scary, complicated, painful situation because they... I couldn't get them to come home with us after the doctor told me how important it was. And so this is just one small scenario of what families go through trying to help their families and trying to get help for them and then be getting stuck because of the mental health laws that if they're not harming themselves or others, you know, you can't get help. And the doctor even told me, he goes, if you call the cops, there's nothing you can do because they're, they're not harming themselves. And so it can be very, um, it can be very difficult for families. Um, and then of course, you know, be, another thing about the, about the behavior is that I think that's where stigma comes because um, the, the behavior again, it's so bizarre. It's so compulsive. It's unpredictable. And then you don't want to talk about it because some people still don't understand it and make fun of it. Um, also the family member may not want you to tell someone about it. And it's, it's not like high blood pressure where you can take someone's blood pressure and know they have high blood pressure or diabetes where you can take a blood test and know someone has diabetes. You know, there's nothing physically to show that this person is ill. And so it, it just, it just causes a lot of issues for the families. I think a lot of the families are isolated because of this, because they don't really have anyone to talk to about it. They don't have um, anyone who really understands it. And it, it, it can just cause a lot of issues, a lot of. You're, a lot of yes, you're, you're so right, Sandra. The behavior can be very frightening and we don't know when, when is the right time to call for support. Um, I think that there's a lot or there can be 
a lot of negotiating with our loved one. Once we have been educated about what their diagnosis is and like Jeff said, you know, we want to focus on what's strong. So the better we know our loved one, uh, the better we should be able to support them in times of crisis. Uh-huh. And Jackie, you mentioned it earlier that <clears throat> like they are who they are. If, if they're typically not a violent person, if they weren't a violent person before diagnosis, then usually they're not going to be a, a violent person uh, when they have a diagnosis. Uh, they may be impulsive uh, or they may be uh, compulsive, but typically they're going to keep the same personality. Uh, one thing I'd like to uh, inject is anxiety. And I think um, that's probably uh, the one symptom uh, that, that people don't take into consideration. And oftentimes, anxiety is what takes a person over the edge or what leads to uh, some type of a, a manic break or uh, just real irrational behavior. And so we need to be aware when uh, anxiety is introduced. Um, like Sandra, you mentioned the case of taking the person back home. Uh, a lot of times we're not aware of the fact that just a person being at home is causing them anxiety. Uh, if they're in a situation and they have uh, some type of a manic attack or serious behavior, there's usually something in that area that causes them anxiety. They may have anxiety because they feel like when I come out my room, somebody's going to tell me I should have a job or, you know, I should be cleaning up or I should be more responsible. Just the thought of that will often bring on high levels of anxiety. Sometimes people have bipolar, but they're able to, to function fairly normally. Uh, but just the thought of knowing I have to report to work Monday, that they think I'm going to be there Monday, sometimes just that little thought um, just brings so much anxiety that they're always on edge. Um, you will notice that a lot of times when you are finally able to hospitalize someone and you go to a hospital, you see a lot of people who, you know, seem uh, depressed or out of it or are really low functioning. And it's because when they go to a hospital, the first thing that they have to do is slow down how their mind works because their mind is in overdrive. It's, it's, it's functioning too fast and it's working too hard. And that's because they've been overwhelmed with anxiety. So, so that plays a big key. And I think the more you can be aware of what causes anxiety for your family member and be able to address that, a lot of times you'll have much better success in dealing with their symptoms. Mm -hmm. Good points, Jeff. Yeah. And, you know, just listening to you talk, I'm thinking back on what happened 20 years ago. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking that person is just, you know, having some mad behavior and doesn't want to do what the doctor said, but it could have been causing them anxiety just thinking about having to go to somebody else's house for two weeks. Um, I, I didn't even think about that till now. You know, here I am just trying to do what the doctor said, but looking at it from their point of view, that could have been causing them a lot of anxiety just to do that. Um. Another thing about stigma that I want to talk about, and this may have to be another conversation if you guys would like to join me again, is um, they talk about Kanye um, faking and being manipulative. And from my experience, I have uh, several family members with mental health issues. Um, I guess it could look like that to some people because, you know, if someone doesn't want to go to work or something, someone may be thinking they're being manipulative or faking, but I just want to bring up that, that that could be part of this illness, that could be part of the disorder. Um, those could be some of the symptoms 
I don't know if Kanye West is faking or being manipulative at all. I don't know him personally, but I do know from experience that um, those can be symptoms of the illness. And um, what I wanted to say earlier when I was talking about high blood pressure and diabetes, I just, one of the big things that we want people to know is that mental illness is an illness just like those physical Ill, um, illnesses, high blood pressure, diabetes. And I think the more we can say it and we, the more we can get people to understand that we can decrease the stigma and get people educated and get people help. Once people understand, it's not just someone out there acting different than everybody else, that it truly is an illness. It truly is um, a disorder. Uh, bipolar disorder and the other mental mental health illnesses. So um, I just wanted to make sure we said that. Yes, I, I can remember when um, my loved one was pre-diagnosis and some family members thought he was just being um, uncooperative, uh, lazy, uh, lots of lots of words were thrown around, and you know I had a lot of advice from people that weren't informed very well. And some of the suggestions were, "Well, you just need to to kick this, you know, your loved one out. They're taking advantage of you. They're manipulating you." But somewhere deep deep inside of me, I knew that that wasn't the right answer for me and my family. That my loved one needed mm-hmm. support. So then we started digging and asking questions and it's really good to explore with your loved one and, and not ask closed questions. Um, You know, how can I support you? What would you like me to do if this happens again? What has worked in the past? Um, And the, these misconceptions that, you know, my loved one's not lazy and he wasn't faking it. Right. I get so, so frustrated with those things at times, but I've I've learned that this is a brain disease. Like you said, um, it's like kidney disease or heart disease, but we can't see it. We know that brain diseases are, are traumatic um, brain injuries or not injuries necessarily, but illnesses. And sometimes Mm -hmm. there are environmental factors. Yeah, and I think it's important um, to get ahead of it. You know, a lot of times we'll see, you know, certain behavior or we'll have a certain diagnosis and we think we're just dealing with that. Um, But if you notice, diagnosis can change all the times. And a lot of times a person will have a diagnosis and they are having anxiety um, that's causing them constant distress. But it could be negative where you can't see it or it could be where it's right on the edge but it's not dramatic enough to cause them uh, to have a, a major episode, but they're leading towards a major episode. So you'll, you'll see someone who's diagnosed with bipolar and then all of a sudden they'll have a manic break and then now their diagnosis changes to one of the schizophrenic diagnoses. But it's because we didn't get ahead or, or we're not uh, addressing um, the anxiety or addressing you know, serious symptoms to make sure it doesn't get any worse. And a lot of times that's what will cause a diagnosis to change over time is when we don't get ahead of it to slow it down and then begin to decrease symptoms. Great. 
Okay, well, I think we're getting um, close to the end. And before we end it, I wanted to talk about um, if I wanted to talk about some resources out there. So the whole point of this discussion today was to educate those of you who don't know what bipolar disorder is, um, and also to provide some resources to family caregivers out there, and also anyone who feels like they're experiencing any kind of a mental illness. You know, we want you to know you are not alone. There are resources out there. Some of the resources, I'm just going to name off a couple of resources. And then Jackie, if you can kind of expand on each of them, um, you can always reach out to your county behavioral health system. And those are going to be different depending on what county you're in, what they offer. But I I would reach out to the county behavioral health system, Um, NAMI, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, Um, the phone number 211. You can always reach out to your primary care physician and try to get them to a therapist. Uh, And of course, a psychiatrist, if that's needed, Uh, family members, you know, all of those are are great resources for you. So um, Jackie, you want to talk about each of those a little bit? Sure. Uh, And in the county that I live in, in Riverside County, uh, we have uh, family advocates or family support specialists that work in most of the clinics. Uh, that also work with criminal justice, work with um, long-term care, conservatorship issues. That's when somebody's um, rights are taken away and they, are, uh, they can't live by themselves and somebody else makes decisions for them. Um, and also in the county, we have peer supports that work at most of our outpatient clinics. So there's support there and there are other agencies that the county contracts with that provides support for our um, members or consumers, uh, the person with the diagnosis. Uh, NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, they provide education, support for persons with the diagnosis and for the family members. Um, the education classes are called peer to peer and family to family. And they have a NAMI connection support group for the person with the diagnosis and NAMI family to family, or not family to family, excuse me, NAMI family support groups for the family caregivers because we know that these diseases affect the whole family. So we all need to seek and uh, find our support and what works best for us. 211 in the county is a great resource line. They have, they've been building a database for years with lots of different, um, uh, maybe some housing resources where a food pantry, uh, a local uh, low cost therapist, uh, just all kinds of stuff that connect you to um, many different agencies and support and in the family to family class, I learned um, it's always a good idea to get our loved one a good physical. And that might be where that initial uh, referral for additional support comes um, from the primary care physician. Maybe during their examination, they'll say, well, I think maybe, you know, we should get an assessment or an evaluation from somebody else. And then, of course, a therapist can work for either the person with the diagnosis or um, helping family members um, learn how to cope with what they're going through and what, how to accept 
what their loved one is going through and how to separate um, the illness, our loved one and us, and to learn how to set boundaries, but still uh, be able to support our loved one. And I learned an awful lot from taking the family to family class and from teaching it. Thank you, Jackie. That was great. I learned a lot from family to family also. And, you know, I thought as a registered nurse that I know a lot, but after taking that class from a, you know, a family, um, family member point of view, it was just, it was awesome. I, I learned so much. I'm actually, I actually want to take it again because there's just so much information in there to absorb. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I just want to let you guys know when Jackie talks about peer to peer, that's a class for the um, for the for your loved one who has a mental illness, um, and then the family to family is for the family members. And then two one one is a number that you dial, just like nine one one, where they have all the resources that uh, Jackie mentioned. And then Jeff, did you have any um, closing thoughts? Um, I, I just think again, it kind of goes back to. The more understanding and the more education you can get um, about addressing the illness and understanding symptoms, the better prepared you'll be. Um, I've had a lot of experience with NAMI with the family to family and peer to peer. And those are excellent classes if you're out there and you're not really understanding what you're up against or you're kind of struggling um, going through the process of caring for someone and having responsibilities. It really gives you, it, it pays to set aside the time uh, to go through one of those classes and get some experience and get some education on the things that you're dealing with every day. Uh, but I would just uh, encourage the families to, you know, try to do the most work on good days. Like try not to be so caught up in struggling through the difficult days. Try to get as much information, as much insight. Try to help them uh, develop positive communication within their mind on the good days, and those days will save you on the bad days. Mm, I like that. I do too. That's that's good information, Jeff. Go ahead. Oh, I've, I've, I forgot to mention that the county offers family support groups for um, our, our your, all you caregivers and supporters, and they have some peer support groups also. Um, of course, during COVID-19, they're a little, little less accessible, but we should be having some um, available through Zoom soon. Great. Yeah, I'm waiting around for that. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me, Sandra. I appreciate it. I, uh, I, I appreciate you being on here, um, Jeff. Thank you so much. And I, I really hope... Uh, People listen to this. Um, if Jeff and Jack, if you can share it to your family, family, um, any family support members that you know of, because I think this was some awesome, awesome information, and I think it can help a lot of people out there. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Hey, caregivers, I just want to let you know if you have any questions for our guests from today, to send the questions over to me and I will forward it to them. And if you hold on for a few more announcements, you will receive my contact information. Thanks. Sandra is a registered nurse and many of her guests are healthcare professionals. However, this is not a professional podcast nor are we associated with any mental health counseling. Please seek help 
with a professional provider if needed. You can reach Sandra by listening to the podcast on the Anchor app and leaving a message there. Or you can DM her on Instagram at Caregivers Haven. If you enjoy listening to Caregivers Haven podcast, please favorite, subscribe, or follow on your listening platform. Okay, guys, thank you for listening. And until next time, Caregivers Haven is wishing you peace of mind.